Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That book in the Bible that is written in the postmodern language, but was written in the pre-modern world. Only God can do that. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to tear down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to throw stones, and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing. A time to search, and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep, a time to throw away. A time to tear apart, and a time to sew together. A time to be silent, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. That which is has been already. And that which will be has already been. For God seeks what is passed by. Father, we pray Your blessing on the teaching of Your Word this morning and we ask that Your your Holy Spirit would teach our spirits and our souls, that you would gather us to yourself this morning, gather us around you at your feet, and teach us of your word, Father, and your ways, and teach us, Lord, of relationship with you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The top three songs of 1965 where I Can't Get No Satisfaction, Rolling Stones, that was number one that year. Yesterday, The Beatles was number two. And number three was a song called Turn, Turn, Turn to Everything There is a Season by The Birds. And I read that, top three songs, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, Yesterday, and Turn, 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 and I wonder if The Rolling Stones, The Beatles, and The Birds were all reading Ecclesiastes that year. Because the sentiment is so right on for this book. Pete Seeger is the one who wrote the words to Turn, Turn, Turn. The Birds then made it a hit song again in 65. But to be fair, Pete Seeger didn't really write Turn, Turn, Turn. He quoted the entire song from Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8, as we just read, only adding to it six words at the end of the song. After a time for peace, he added, I swear it's not too late. And he got a hit out of it. I thought, wow, that's all it takes. Just quote a passage and add a line and you got a hit song. Actually, you could say God wrote a hit pop song in 1965. I mean, let's give credit where credit's due. But this passage is not just for the birds. <laughs> These verses are not a flight of fancy. It was actually it was the birds. Yeah, birds, turtles, beetles. It was some little animal. <laughs> I did look it up. I'm pretty sure it was the birds with a Y. Approaching this song, probably on a wing and a prayer. I don't know. Um. <laughs> what? It's not slow like, thank you. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> this is not interactive, Larry. I'm up here. And you just... <laughs> thank you. I will stay on point. I'm unflappable. You say. <laughs> In these lines, the preacher, Kohelet, As we saw last week, Kohelet, the Hebrew word for Ecclesiastes, and it simply means the preacher, one who gathers the assembly together to teach them. 
And Kohalath, the name that is given, the name that the preacher chooses to give himself, Solomon, most likely, he expresses the beautiful ebb and flow of our existence. I think that's why it was a hit song. As people listened to it, they thought, yeah, that's life. That's how we live. That's what it's like on this world, on this earth. And on the surface, they're kind of dreamy, almost psychedelic. I mean, they really fit 1965. However, however, there's more than meets the eye with these verses. They are not as gentle and ebbing and flowing as we might at first think. There is an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven. And superficially, this appointed pattern gives us a sense of well-being. Everything's right in its time. It's all going to work out. Everything works the way it's supposed to. We have this sense of orderliness or control. But deep down, what comes under the surface of these verses is unnerving. Because what they describe as we read through these eight verses is not a sense of control, but a subcurrent of life that is out of our control. We have no control over any of these things. Ten years ago today, as Josh mentioned, and you all know, September 11th, 2001, for some 3,000 people, it was a time to get up, a time to work, time to travel. Not knowing that for nine others it was a time to kill, a time to tear down, a time to hate. Life out of control. The day's plans gone completely awry. The nation's plans turning a corner in an instant. Life beyond our control. And one of the most brutal lessons of September, 9, uh, September 11th, 2001 is that we cannot control the sphere of our lives. You think you're going to go to work and everything's going to be fine. You'll be home in the evening and you're not. Family thinks they're going to see family at lunch or in the evening and they don't. And we can't control the world in which we live and it's unnerving because we want to. In fact, we try very hard to control the world around us. But this reality flows behind these opening verses in Ecclesiastes 3 in what we could call, and if you're taking notes, I'm going to frame this in three ways this morning. First of all, the tides of time. The tides of time. Now these eight verses as we begin contain 28 statements. 14 are positive and 14 are negative. With Mathematically speaking, it adds up to nothing at all. It adds up to meaninglessness. It adds up to life just... It's one or the other, and we don't know which it's going to be, and we can't control it. But in these verses, the Lord, through Kohalath, describes the currents and the tides of life that we cannot see on the surface. That which is going on underneath. Things that we don't expect. Verse 2 says, A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planting. And you'll notice these verses are put together well because one line kind of explains the line before it. So in verse 2, there are two different things talked about, birth and death, and then planting and uprooting. But the planting and uprooting are a picture of the birth and the dying. And you'll find this is pretty much the pattern all the way through. Like the produce of the field, we have no say in our planting. Or... When we're uprooted, we have no say. Birth and death are not the bookends of a well-ordered life, my friends. They are the beginning of our non-control and the end of our non-control because we have no say. We have no say in arrival or departure. David wrote in Psalm 139.16, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So God has control, but I don't. I didn't have any say in it. I didn't choose to be born September 21st, 1964. That was a choice out of my hands. And when the day of my death comes, hopefully it won't, hopefully it's the day of my rapture, but whichever comes, I have no say in that either. It will be as it is. Psalm 90 verse 11 says, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due to you? So... Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And something that comes out, we saw it Wednesday night, we see it again here, wisdom teaches us to number our days. Wisdom teaches us to be wide awake and aware of the fact that we don't control the days of our lives. 
And when we put off things, especially, by the way, spiritual decisions, I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that yet. I don't know if I'd like to follow God in this way or in that way. I'm not sure if I'm ready to step up to that. I I think I will eventually, but, but not today. How do you know how much day you have left? You don't. We have no say in it. Wisdom recognizes the uncontrollable tide of time. Look at verse 3. The time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up. Boy, that's not an appropriate verse for today. And yet the word kill there, the time to kill, harag in the Hebrew, can be either intentional or accidental. Who expected the Tesoro accident that took seven lives on April in April of 2010? Accidental. No one planned that. No one tried to make that happen, that that tragedy that affected many of you even here. Who expected 9-11, that intentional attack on our country and on our way of life? And on the other hand, we struggle with our lack of control even over things like healing. We pray for it. We ask for it. And then we struggle in that place that I believe God wants us to struggle, by the way, With His sovereignty and our faith, where do they meet? Where does the impact of my faith in in Him healing me affect the healing that I experience or don't experience? Again, it's, it's out of my control. Try as I might to control all these things. Some people are marvelously and miraculously healed. We were talking in our shepherds meeting, just starting to name off some people over the years here who have been healed, and not just healed, but miraculously by the hand of God. As people gathered around to pray. And yet, in our falsely well-ordered lives, we tend to skip right over those things. I had forgotten how many people God had touched personally with physical healing. Amazing. But the control seems beyond us. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn. And a time to dance. We don't usually prepare for these types of emotions to erupt in our lives. Weeping and laughter are not typically planned events unless you're going to see a stand-up comedian or perhaps go to a wake. (laughs) We don't typically plan to burst out in laughter. It just happens. It's out of our control. Verse 5, he says, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. Let me explain this. Throw stones here is not talking about the punishment of stoning from Hebrew law. A time to throw stones, the Hebrew word is shalak, and it literally means to cast away or to remove. The intent probably has to do here with casting away or removing stones from a field for the purpose of planting. There's too many rocks in the ground here. Too many stones in the way. We need to get these out. We need to cast them away so that we can plant in this field. Or perhaps the casting away of stones, he says, a time to gather stones, the gathering for the purpose of construction or building something up. In either case, I think what Kohalath is indicating here is relationships. Building, removing obstacles to... And we see this in the latter part of verse 5, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. As I said to my daughter Hannah, a sophomore in college, now is the time to shun embracing. (laughs) Kohalath is talking about how to remove obstacles in relationship. Are there stones in a relationship that you have with someone that need to be cast away? Rocks that make it difficult for you to love another person or interact with them. He's talking about how we build up, how we tear down, how we embrace, how we reject each other. And even this is difficult to control in our lives. Who can control another human being? There's only one person that I have any control over, and that's myself, and I'm pretty unruly. (laughs) I have difficulty... Handling myself sometimes. And it's why, over and over in the Scripture, we are called to love each other. It's a command from Jesus. It's a constant encouragement and exhortation among the apostles. Paul saying in 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Remove the stones. Or gather stones to build up. Embrace each other. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.22, and this is a powerful verse, 
since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. He's talking about two different kinds of love there. And here's the pattern. When you come in obedience to the truth, when you come to Jesus, He purifies you, and it begins right at the outset, a love of the brethren. The word there in the Greek, love of the brethren, 1 Peter 1.22, is Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Friendship love. It's the word, by the way, that Peter used in responding to Jesus when Jesus said, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know I like you. John 21. Like. It's like love. But Peter says, go on. Fervently love one another. Agapao, or agape love. Unconditional love. We are called, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to remove the stones in our relationships in such a way that we move from brotherly, sisterly love to unconditional love for each other. Because unconditional love doesn't allow a stone to get in the way of an embrace. That's the calling that is on our lives. And you can't change another person, but you can cast away the stones that block or hinder relationship, allowing the relationship to be fertile and to grow. Verse 6, a time to search, a time to give up as lost, a time to keep, and a time to throw away. Now is the time for searching. Another great calling on our lives as followers of Jesus. It is now the time to be searching. Searching for the lost. Searching for that which right now is not found. We talk about this all the time, but it's my friends, my family, my relationships with people who do not know Jesus. And people who have never given their lives to Him. Who are are not walking in that precious relationship that we can so easily take for granted. Now is the time for searching. Now is the time for precious things to be kept. A time for things to be kept, he says. A time to keep. And right now, the Lord is keeping you for that day of salvation. He keeps you. Luke 19, verse 10 says, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. But the time is coming and will come when the search is called off. And in this, I am reminded of something else I cannot control. I cannot control the day of the Lord. I cannot control the day when God will begin to pour out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Isaiah says in Isaiah 13, verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold. And they will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger. To make the land a desolation, He will exterminate its sinners from it. In that context, listen again to verse 6. The time to search, which is now, but also a time to give up is lost. A time to keep, which is now, and a time to throw away. Oh, Rick, that sounds a little harsh. Listen. What is going to be certain judgment then is because of mercy now. We can't control the day of the Lord, but He is so merciful, He is so full of love that He has been warning of this coming day for centuries. In fact, the very first prophecy we have indicates it. Because He loves so much. And yet the time is coming where it will be a time to throw away. Verse 7, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together. The word tear apart there is literally to rend. And it speaks of the tearing of a robe or clothing. Which, you know, Jewish people used to do in the culture as a sign of great sorrow or consternation or pain. To rend the garment. To tear the clothing. It's like what David did when he heard that his son Absalom had been killed. Remember the, the messenger came and explained, said what had happened, and Second Samuel 13.31 says the king arose, tore his clothes, and lay on the ground, and all his servants were standing by when his clothes were torn. David knew there was a time to tear apart. There's also a time to sew together. And this picture here is beautiful of rending and sewing together. It, pic- it pictures, gang, repentance, that tearing of the garment in sorrow. And restoration. That sewing back together. Joel chapter 2 verse 13 says, Rend your heart and not your garments. 
Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. But even this, I'll tell you from a pastor's perspective, from a believer's perspective, repentance is a mystery to me. Why is it that on certain occasions... Someone just breaks and gives their life to Jesus in a remarkable and immediate turnaround of their lives. And in other situations, try as you might, preach until you're blue in the face, nothing happens. There have been times over the years where I thought, this is the one, if I heard this sermon, I would give my life to Jesus all over again. (laughs) And nothing. And that's not a judgment of the listener, It's, it's, it's where the heart is. Who can control? I can't control the heart. Can you? Haven't you been begging, pleading, praying for someone in your life to give their heart to Jesus and they just aren't doing it? Who can control repentance? Not you. Not me. It's out of our control. He continues, he says, a time to be silent and a time to speak. Husbands, please don't use that with your wives. Verse (laughs) 8. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Jesus said, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, Matthew 24. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are the beginning of the birth pangs. And so we come down through these eight verses, and you can read and reread them, think through them, but on the surface, they portray this gentle rhythm of life in this poetic song, kind of like a glassy surface of the ocean. You know, one of those days when you look out and it's just almost crystal clear, the water doesn't seem to be moving at all. But it's not the song of hope that the birds tried to make it into. A time for peace. I swear it's not too late. We can do it. How have we been doing since 65? (laughs) You know, they say the most dangerous riptides lie under the calmest surfaces of the water. That's why they're so dangerous to swimmers. The swimmer looks out in the water and says, Hey, it's clear. It's a beautiful day for swimming. And out they swim. And next thing they know, they are pulled so far out that in exhaustion they drown because they cannot make their way back. Growing up in Southern California, I know all about undertoes. I was caught in my fair share. Thankfully, they were not any of the killing type, but they're out there. And I remember going to the beach on certain days where there would be a flag up. And we would know, don't go in. Don't go in. It's dangerous today. Koheleth is describing, I believe in these eight verses, the uncontrollable currents in the tides of time. We can't do anything about them. You know, we almost lost Naomi before we got her. Little Naomi, about two and a half at the time, Cheryl was in Accra in Ghana, and they took all the kids from Beacon House Orphanage out to the beach for the day. And Cheryl can describe it better to you than I can, but she saw Naomi go running out into the waves, no fear, and get pulled under. And one of the house moms grabbed her as she was going by, grabbed her by the scruff of her, the back of her bathing suit, and was holding her up. She was just hanging there dripping. You know? We almost lost her. It's kind of what happens in life, isn't it? That uh, we're going along, cruising, everything's fine, and suddenly a riptide occurs. An undertow pulls you under, you're out, and you're in a place you were not expecting. You didn't know it was coming. How do we deal with this? And all people recognize there are unexplainable tides and currents that take us in one direction in one season and then instantaneously puts everything into reverse. George W. Bush thought he would be a peacetime president. He thought he was going to deal primarily on uh, you know, our country's internal issues. National stuff. You know, educate. He thought he'd be the education president. That's kind of what he was thinking when he went into office. And in a heartbeat, it all changed. And you probably saw it change in the look on his face when he was interviewed there in the Oval Office just after 9-11. And they began to ask him about his, what he's feeling about this. And you remember what he said? I'm a compassionate man. But right now I've got to go to work. And in an instant, a peacetime president became a wartime president and it would define his entire presidency. He didn't know that was coming. Our country didn't know what was coming. How did Pearl Harbor, or World War II, or Vietnam, or 9-11, or or the Afghanistan, or the Iraq Wars, 
How do they affect the direction of our nation? We are such a different nation. And tragically, I fear more torn apart now than we've ever been. And all of these events, all of these circumstances, how about the life-altering circumstances in your life? Those things unexpected. You didn't know it was going to happen, but here you are, and you were going one way, and now you're going the opposite direction. Maybe your entire life philosophy has changed because of a tragedy or a heartache in your life. That's what he's talking about. An accident, an illness, a loss, or, or a great windfall. The unexpected that completely alters the direction that we're going. Things that we could not have planned for. Derek Kidner says, The trouble for us is not that life refuses to keep still, but that we only see a fraction of its movement and of its subtle, intricate design. Instead of changelessness, there is something better, a dynamic, divine purpose with its beginning and its end. We are like the desperately nearsighted inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it all in. We see just enough to recognize something of the quality, but the grand design escapes us. And this is what Koheleth is indicating. For the humanist, the secular humanist, the elusive grand design is not only elusive, but it becomes oppressive. Number two in your outline, the tyranny of eternity. The tyranny of eternity. Once we start to figure out that life is out of control, despite our best efforts, we come face to face with the tyranny of eternity. Verse 9, What profit is there to the worker for that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. It's not a paycheck he's talking about here. It's a purpose. He's not talking about money when he says what profit is there to the worker. He's talking about meaning. You know, why am I even doing what I'm doing? Groping for value in my work or my pleasure or my relationships all the while knowing that value is beyond my grasp. And the humanist tries to inject meaning into things only to find that those very things become meaningless once again. And as we talked about last week, it is a God-given burden to every person in this world. That we try to find the meaning, but we can't. It eludes us. Verse 11, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. And here's the burden. Here it is in a nutshell. We have been set in time, but we were made for eternity. We are fish out of water. But there's something in our hearts and our minds that God says, you were created for that we cannot find in this world. Set in time, made for eternity. And there is no religion that can answer this longing. And there is no human relationship that can fill that desire. There's no experience of man that can satisfy that eternal hunger that if we will pay attention to it, gnaws at us. So what the world tries to do is completely ignore it. What the humanist says is, I'm not going to think about that. But it's there. Is it any wonder that life is marked by frustration and confusion when it's lived apart from God? When we live in the recognition of God, which is Kohala's purpose, don't forget that. He's playing the role of the humanist to bring us to the point where we realize we've got to be with God. Because without Him, it's going to be frustrating. Without Him, your life will always be confusing, will always be just a tyrant. Eternity becomes a tyrant. If you live a secular life keeping God at a distance, suppressing, as Paul wrote, the truth in righteousness, suppress the truth and you will be frustrated. Paul said in Romans 1.19, that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood that through what has been made, so they're without excuse. But even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But watch what happens. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And Kohalath would say to the secular humanist, if you choose to live in the dark, why should you be surprised that you can't see? If I choose... 
to try to subvert or dismiss eternity, eternity becomes a tyrant for me. It tyrannizes with this nagging truth. There's got to be more than meets the eye. There's got to be more than what we see. There's got to be more than going to work and coming home and doing the bills and watching TV and getting up in the morning and going to work again. There's got to be more than raising children and watching them grow up and go off to college and start their own lives and then you're left there. There's got to be more. And we all say that at some point in our heads. Believers or not, there's got to be more and it's the tyranny of eternity. But the preacher now opens a window. He opens a window in a bleak room of humanistic despair to invite in the light, just for a moment, the goodness of God. Look at verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is a gift of God. Do good, he says. It's a gift to be able to do good, which is why even the non-believer can be a philanthropist. Why even the humanist can do good things in the world. It's a gift from God. It's the one thing that provides a shred of meaning in a human life to do good. Paul says in Ephesians 5.15, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. For the days are evil. And both the Christian and the non-Christian can apply that verse. Make the most of your time. Do good. But even the humanist who's doing good comes back to the same place. That's it? That's God's gift to mankind? Do good? After all the do-gooding that I do in my life, I'm still right back where I started from, staring into the void. I don't get it. Of course not. Because without God, any goodness fails. But, for a moment, Koheleth peeks through the mask of futility with eyes of faith. Speaking of eternity, speaking of God, there is that nagging truth of humanism, there's more than meets the eye, but my friends, the nagging truth of humanism is the core of Christian joy and purpose. Let me say that again. The nagging truth of humanism, which is that there's more than meets the eye, is at the core of our Christian joy. The humanist would say, there's got to be more than meets the eye. The Christian says, there's more than meets the eye. Oh yes, there's more than meets the eye. That's what excites me. That's what thrills me. There's more than meets the eye. And I can shout that out on the worst day of my life when everything's going wrong, everything's out of my control, and I don't know where to turn or what to do. I can stop and say, oh, but there's more than meets the eye. Praise God. Koheleth is brilliant in the way he's drawing us along, isn't he? Koheleth says, do good. Do good. And that sounds good, except with all the world's evils, we have to contend with the fact that we're not good. (laughs) Do good, but I'm not. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 tells us as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now I love that because Jesus was hinting at his own divinity. You call me good? No one's good but God. So, good God. It's me. (laughs) But he's also stating an absolute truth. No one is good but God alone. So, Kohala says, do good. And... Jesus tells us very clearly, no one is good except God. Do good, but no one is good. Look at verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. Kohala says, do good. And Jesus says, no one is good. How do I reconcile the two? You can't. Unless God be in you. And if God is in you, suddenly, suddenly now, this whole concept of doing good has a new meaning to it. From birth to death. From planning to uprooting, tearing down, building up, weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing. 
in love and hate, in war and peace, through the tides of time and the tyranny of eternity, the one thing that changes me, listen, the one thing that makes all the difference in the world, I'm going to give you a hint, it's not church. It's not a religious system. It's not a worldview. The one thing that changes me is His presence. It's His presence. Do good. Okay, I'll try. No one is good. Uh, unless God is in you. Because God is good. And this brings me to number three, the turning of His presence. The turning of His presence. If you heard nothing this morning, hear this. The turning of His presence. Verse 15. That which is has been already. And that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. What does that mean? Koheleth points to a place that is all at once past, present, and future. Verse 15, he's talking about past, present, and future. A place that can only be occupied by an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. Eternity. Eternity. Past, present, and future. It's all one massive eternal now. It's instantaneous. It's God in eternity. The great I am. Not I was. He's not the I will be. He is the I am. And you know what? God is the I am always. He's never past. He's never future. He always is. Completely. And He has always been and will always be the great I am. And He wants to inhabit you. He wants to be present in your life. We've done this before, but I want you to follow this through with me again. Maybe if you haven't done this, let's do it for the first time. Turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. Follow this through with me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay, so to the Jew hearing that, they would know it's Yahweh, the Lord. Isaiah 41. Who has performed it? Who has accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. I am He. Okay, first and last. Alpha and Omega, it's God. Pretty clear. Go over to Isaiah 44, verse 6. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. Now, you can look at verse 6 as giving kind of a dual explanation of who the Lord is, or you can look at it as at least two persons. I am the Lord, King of Israel, and His Redeemer. So either I am the Lord and His Redeemer, or I am the Lord, and His Redeemer is here too. Father, Son. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at Isaiah 48, verse 12. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob. Even Israel, whom I have called, I am He. I am the first. I am also the last. Very clearly, we're talking again about the Lord. Go now to Revelation 21. Verse 5. John here has been describing the new heaven and the new earth, and it's astounding. And all of a sudden, he focuses to him who sits on the throne who would be very clearly, very obviously God Almighty, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Verse 5. And He said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And He said to me, It is done. 
It is done. Who else said it is done? Jesus did on the cross. That's what He said. Same word, by the way. Teleos. Finished. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who inherits will, in, he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Okay, well, is that the Lord? Yeah. Is that Jesus? It's starting to become a little more clear. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now, go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. Revelation 1.17, pulling all this together, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, God has declared it time and time again in the book of Isaiah, in the Scriptures. We see it in Revelation. I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The I Am. Who has always been. Who is always present. Always in the moment. And Revelation 1.17 reads, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet like a dead man. And He placed His right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. When did God die? Only one time in all eternity, on the cross. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who died on the cross. Jesus has always been. Jesus will always be. But don't miss this. Jesus is right now. And one of the things that I think we miss as followers of Jesus more than anything else is the immediacy of His presence. That's what changes us. It is not going to church. It is not any number of Bible studies. It is not time spent in worship. What changes us is the immediacy of Jesus Christ right now. He was dead. And the apostles were devastated and deflated. And in their grief, they had forgotten what He said to them just three days before. John 14, 19, He said, After a little while, the world will no longer see Me. But you will see Me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in My Father, and you in Me, and I in you. Talk about an immediate presence. He says, in that day, this is the way it's going to be. In that day. In what day? What day was He talking about? In that day, you will see me. And because I live, you will live also. Was he talking about the day of his resurrection? To a degree. You know, for on that day they did see him. And boy, did they come alive. All of them saw him actually except Thomas. And they would spend a week trying to convince Thomas that they had seen Jesus and that he was present, that he was alive. John chapter 20, verse 25 says, The other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, they're gathered together and Jesus showed up. Why? For Thomas' sake. He said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here with your hand. Put it into my side. (laughs) Wow. And do not be unbelieving. But believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, which was blasphemy if Jesus wasn't God. And Jesus says, Because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And they would see Jesus multiple times over the next 40 days before he finally ascended to his Father. But back on that Thursday night, Jesus didn't just say that they would see Him. He said, you will see Me, you will live. He said, in that day, you will know that I am in My Father and you in Me and I in you. In that day, you will know. I will be in you. He was talking about something much bigger than the day of His resurrection. Much more tangible even than them seeing Jesus and being able to touch Him. He was talking about a different day. And again, it's not a way of thinking that turns my life. It is not a certain traditional church upbringing. It is not a system of belief. And I think sometimes it's just too easy for us to settle as a church fellowship into a system of belief. You all are doing really well doctrinally. You really are. I've been watching and we've been studying together. And I shouldn't say you all, we all, because over the last eight years now, be eight years in October, 
we have been in the Word of God. And when I hear conversations, they're different now than they were eight years ago. And when questions are asked, they're different now than they were eight years ago. Because you are a people who have been in the Word. And your doctrine is sound. And your system of belief is healthy and it's good. But it will not do for you what needs to be done. Only His presence. What's the difference? See, that's the problem. We don't even know the difference. Between, we say it all the time between religion and relationship, but that, that's become so trite. You know? Oh yeah, I don't it's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's, we've got to get beyond words here. And into the reality of Jesus, it is Jesus who turns me. It is Christ in me. I don't go home from church. I don't leave Him aside. Christ in me. Every breathing moment of my life. And when I stop breathing, then the reality will probably finally hit many. What could have been their reality their entire lives, the mystery, Paul says, Colossians 1.26, which has been hidden from ages past and generations, now it's been manifested to His saints. Let me take away the religious sound to that. It's been seen by His people. His people know. His people are aware of this mystery. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. But have we in our church settings developed our systems of belief instead of developing our walk with Christ? Are we too comfortable in just knowing the right things rather than being with Him? Even if it's wild or out there or or different than what we expected. I wonder if that is why in America today the miraculous is less obvious. Why supernatural events that we saw in the early church are missed today. Why the lost are not found. I I see two extremes in the world today, in the church. I see the extreme on the one hand of solid doctrinal teaching and not a lot going on miraculously. And I see on the other hand, this wild out there and nearly heretical, you know, charge after all things that could be experiential. All things, that, you know, supernatural for the sake of the supernatural. And you know what? They're both wrong. It's to walk in the sound doctrine of the Word of God with the experience of Jesus Christ as real and as now. It's expecting God to move supernaturally because He is supernatural. It's looking for miracles all the while hoping in His Word. It's praying for divine healing and when it doesn't come, it's having faith that God knows what He's doing even when I'm out of control. Which is a very balanced way of of walking in the Lord with Jesus. I guess what I'm saying is unless we are turned by the presence of Christ Himself, even our Christianity will be vanity. Meaningless. You keep saying, turned by Jesus. Well, what is He turning us into? (laughs) Look at verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. And he said eternity in their hearts. The word appropriate, I wish they didn't translate it that way. It's the word yafe in Hebrew, and it's beautiful. Beautiful. He has made everything beautiful in its time. That's what he's doing. He is turning you, he is turning me into something beautiful. I know, guys, it sounds a little weird. He's making me beautiful, man. But He is. He is taking the ugliness of what my life has been and would be without Him and He's turning it. And He's altering it into something beautiful. How ugly have you felt in your life? How ugly do you feel? How brutalized or bedraggled or beaten up have you been in your life? Have the riptides of time thrashed you on the rocks? Are you weary and tired? Are are you just waking up more often with dark circles under your eyes and wondering why is my Christianity not even working for me? I'll tell you why. It's because we're focused on Christianity instead of on Christ. 
who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How would it be if every single person just here in the Bridge Fellowship, much less throughout Island and Skagit counties, how would it be if everyone in this fellowship knew Jesus like that? Coming to Him when we're weary. Yoked up to Him. When He turns, we turn. To the right, to the left, straight forward, I'm going because that's where Jesus is going. How would it be if we all knew Him like that? Then, what good could we accomplish in His name? That's the key game. The Word can't say it any more clearly. We've got to know Him. It's got to be the desire of our lives. I love that so many of you are showing up on Wednesday nights devouring the Scriptures. I love that. I'm devouring it too. But that's not the point. The point is knowing Him. And Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus, we need you so badly, so desperately. In a world and in a time where meaninglessness is, <laughs> seems to be the mindset, where all absolutes have lost their meaning, Lord, when the Christian faith, at least in our country, is not having the impact that we so desperately desire, Jesus, I ask that you start with me this morning. I pray, Lord, you will deal with me. Teach me what it means to walk near You. Just to sit in Your presence in quiet listening for Your voice. I pray, Jesus, for the time for setting aside all the busyness and ridiculousness of my belief system to set it aside in favor of just being with You. And I ask Jesus will affect each man, woman, and child in this fellowship with a new and a more real sense of who you are. Teach us to walk with you. In a world that is out of control, you alone have complete control. And our security and our hope in all eternity is in you, Jesus. So I pray, turn us. Turn us to you. In Jesus' name.